You're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. If you hadn't heard of Commodio Cordis prior to this past week, you likely have now. On January 2nd, DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills made a tackle, got up, and collapsed backwards onto the field. CPR was administered due to cardiac arrest. Many of us in sports medicine started to speculate, for better or worse, a differential diagnosis. For what we do know at the time of this podcast recording is that a cardiac event did occur, whether it be commodio cortis or not. But what exactly is this condition? It's something that's talked about in sports medicine frequently as a rare condition that occurs if there is a blunt trauma to the chest occurring at a specific point in the cardiac cycle. Today on the podcast, I have an expert who has spent a good portion of his career in cardiology contributing to our knowledge of this condition. So let's learn. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Mark Link. Dr. Link is a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine, Division of Cardiology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. He is a native of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He earned his medical degree at Tufts University, followed by his residency in internal medicine at Columbia Presbyterian in New York. Following residency, he served as an internist for the U.S. Air Force, and following an honorable discharge from the Air Force, he completed a fellowship in cardiology and cardiac electrophysiology at Tufts University in Boston. He stayed on as faculty there in 1997, where he rose to the level of professor in 2008. He was recruited to UT Southwestern in 2016, and he's been a primary investigator or collaborating author on over 135 articles and more than 140 abstracts, and has contributed more than 100 chapters and invited reviews for medical textbooks and journals. He has served on the editorial boards of multiple publications and is considered a national expert in electrophysiology. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited to have you on today. This is actually an area, even before this happened, this was a topic that I wanted to cover at some point going through this podcast and various things we do. But just to get this out of the way, this episode is not intended to speculate or discuss the individual case of Damar Hamlin. We are going to talk about a condition that is disproportionately affecting our young athletes, and that's Commodio Cortis. Our goal really is to educate, as always, so all of our listeners can feel better equipped to discuss, diagnose, and effectively manage a condition that requires prompt recognition to result in a positive outcome. Mark, if you had to give just a couple line synopsis of what Commodio Cordatus is, both in the medical terms, since we like to speak that way for our podcast, but also just in lay speak, like if someone was having to explain this to a patient, how, how would you explain what exactly happens? So the end result is ventricular fibrillation. So it's the same ventricular fibrillation we see with acute MIs, we see with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we see with heart dysplasia. There's nothing special about the ventricular fibrillation. It's ordinary ventricular fibrillation. But it's not ischemia. It's not VT degenerating into VF. It's, it's immediate ventricular fibrillation. And so how we get to that point is that you have an impact to the left chest directly over the heart that is appropriately timed, and that's 1% to 2% of the cardiac cycle, and that's an appropriate object, and that's typically a hard object like a baseball, a crossball, or hockey puck, and that is at the appropriate energy or velocity. It can't be too little. It can't be too much. It's got to be just right, and a lot of other variables go into that, but those are the big variables. When everything like that is the perfect storm, you can get VF. In humans, we don't we see it 15 to 20 percent time. In our animal model, we could optimize everything. And when we optimize everything, we could get VF with about 30 percent of the strikes. 
So amazingly reproducible. Mark, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this topic in your career. Sure. So th- this was 1995, a long time ago now. And this is uh, when Barry Marin published the series in the New England Journal about 25 cases of commodio cordis. And my boss at the time was Mark Estes. Mark Estes wrote the editorial. Barry called Mark and said, don't you have a fellow that wants to look into this? We don't know why this happens. Get a fellow to get interested in this and try to figure it out. Mark Estes came to me and said, are you interested in this? And I said, yeah, this is really pretty fascinating. And so I reviewed the literature, did a comprehensive search, and then I wrote a grant to Noxy mm-hmm. asking for a grant to study this. And the grant was for $40,000 and they funded me. And so in 1996, I started my experimental protocol. I wanted to simulate the human condition. So that's, that's what I wanted to do. To simulate the human condition, I knew that I had to use an animal because there's no other way to study it. We chose anesthetized male swine that were adolescents since Commodio cordis was 95% male. And I knew that I had to have an apparatus that was able to time the impact. So I knew I had to have that. So the first apparatus I built, I used a commercial EP stimulating machine and I had a solenoid that I could uh, trigger a release and I dropped weights from the ceiling of different weights and it just, it didn't work. So I knew that that wasn't going to work. And so the next thing I said is I've got, I've got to get a way to fire a ball and a pitching machine wasn't going to work because they're not accurate enough. They're not accurate enough in location. And so I spent the next couple months in my basement doing these catapult machines to throw a baseball. And you have to have a lot of force to get to a 30 or 40 mile baseball in a short time period. I thought I would do these catapult machines where I had the PVC piping and I'd have a arm that threw the ball through the PVC piping. And the problem was you could do it, but you just shatter the PVC because there was so much force. And, you know, our basement was strewn with uh, broken PVC pipes. And then I came on uh, that I had to do something different. And I actually mounted the ball on an arrow. And then it was the compound bow was on the apparatus. And I had a trigger release that I could trigger from the EP med stimulator and impact wherever I wanted on the cardiac cycle. So it all started, you know, kind of in the basement. (laughs) That's how these stories start, right? In the basement? They often start in the basement. And and that's, that's what happened. It was a developed apparatus that was very accurate in timing and very accurate in where it struck. So like, you know, just put in perspective, like over what month or year period of time did it take you to finally develop this, this model? I would say about six months to develop the model. Cause I started again, dropping weights from the ceiling. Yeah. Um, you can clear that was not going to work. You know, I had some time pressure because the grants are time limited. You can't mm-hmm. go on forever. So well, there was some time pressure and you know, a lot of it, 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 it worked. Yeah. I got lucky. It worked. It may not have worked, but it, it worked. Why the swine? I mean, fill me in as someone who doesn't have that background knowledge as far as choosing that animal. Why why swine for your animal model? The obvious best animal would have been humans, obviously. Can't do yeah. that. The next obvious best animal would have been primates, but that's not going to happen. And then you have kind of the choice of, of dogs or swine. And if you look at electrophysiology studies, they use both. They use both swine and they use dogs. Swine have very similar anatomy to humans. And to be honest, I I couldn't do this to a dog. So 
swine became the model that we picked. You kind of alluded earlier when you were mentioning kind of how you got started in this, and, and I think some of this comes down to the U.S. Commodio Cordis Registry that was developed in 1995. Tell us a little bit about this registry, because I think these registries for these or these less common conditions, are, I think, are obviously really important to advancing our knowledge about these things. Yeah, absolutely. It's the whole thing that got me involved. This registry was started at University of Minnesota by Barry Merritt. And it was a registry primarily of news reports and people sending him cases of Commodio Cordis. And that's where the first 25 cases come from. And that's where the New England Journal of Medicine paper came from in 1995. That registry has continued till about 2010, 2012, and has over 200 cases. Unfortunately, it didn't continue past that. Hmm. Um, so that it kind of got stuck at 2012. And we have those 220 cases from the registry. It was a, a great registry for many, many reasons. And after I started my experimental studies, Barry and I, Barry Marin and I started to collaborate. So then I started writing papers from that registry also, and he was on the papers from our experimental lab. I was looking at a lot of these papers. I mean, if we if we're going to look at the literature, it's 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 you, Barry Marin, and and Mark Estes definitely are are the names that come up frequently when we look at Commodio Cordis. And it's not just a sports medicine problem. I mean, we talk about it in this terms, and I was reviewing one of your publications. I saw the data from this registry. It suggested that a little less than two-thirds of these were sports cases. But what are what are the other reasons that we see Commodio Cordis occur outside of sports? There are a number of other cases, and the, and the common denominator is a hard object striking the left chest. Probably the next most common outside of sports is, is chest thumps or hitting, fighting, fist fights. So you'll see that there's a case of a father disciplining his child in his math problems that he strikes him in the chest and he drops dead. There's a case of a four or five-year-old girl whose dog hits her in the um, in the chest and she goes down. So hmm. it, there's, yeah, some gruesome cases. So one of the more gruesome cases, there's a, evidently a, some people think a cure for hiccups is to get hit in the chest. <laughs> so someone was hiccuping and they asked their friend to hit him in the chest and he hit him in the chest and he dropped dead. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, there's some wild cases. Wow. Well, let's not try that at home. That's like <laughs> we yeah. use that in sports medicine to use in the Bible to smack the ganglion cyst on the back of wrists. And I try and discourage patients from using that technique as well. Obviously, that's not going to put you in the situation like Commodio Cordis will, but boy, oh boy, I'd feel pretty bad for that person who uh, hit that person in the chest. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and we'll talk more with Dr. Mark Link. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising could have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, 
<laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. And we're back discussing Commodio Cordis with Dr. Mark Link. Mark, you were the lead author of the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology scientific statement on eligibility and disqualification of competitive athletes with cardiovascular conditions. And Task Force 13, which was on Commodio Cordis, was your thing. I'd like to walk our listeners through the summary of the document and just we can discuss various aspects of this. And the first thing that was brought up in this was risk factors. So what risk factors, you've mentioned a few, but have been identified for this particular condition? There have been a number of risk factors that came out of our model. Hardness of the ball is clearly one. We did a series of experiments of safety baseballs versus standard baseballs, and safety baseballs were clearly better. The smaller the object shape, the greater the risk. A golf ball, although there's been no golfing incidents, was a, had a higher risk for commodio in our model than a, than a baseball and a softball. And in, in the risk, in, including the other variables, which are speed and timing. In terms of the patient variability, the most common age, these are adolescents, uh, typically between 11 and 15, 11 and 17. The mean age in the registry is 14. So it's, it's young and typically male. 95% of the cases in the registry are male. So it's young male adolescents playing sports with a risk of impact to the chest. Why 95% male? I mean, we know that there are several of these sports where we have these hard balls, lacrosse as an example, baseball or softball. They're played by males and females. Any thoughts as to why this is this is primarily a male-dominated problem? Well, I think there are two, two possibilities here, and they're probably both true. Uh, one is males play a higher predominance of the sports in which this occurs, and that's baseball and hockey and lacrosse. But that doesn't, as you said, that doesn't account for only because increasingly women since Title IX are playing these sports. There may be some gender or sex-specific susceptibility, and we see that in other conditions such as long QT syndrome and ischemic heart disease. Mm-hmm. So there, there may be something there that sex plays a role. So I think it's both of those. Gotcha. You know, you alluded to the the speed of the ball, and you know, too fast is is, is not good. Too too uh, too slow is not good. There has to be this just right. It's it's really this is that perfect storm type of injury that we're talking about here. Any thoughts why it's it you know it, it too fast would actually not be beneficial to causing commodity cordis? Well, too fast, you actually start to cause some structural damage to the heart, and so I think that's the issue. And you see. Too fast is almost unheard of in sports, to be honest, because you see the damage to the heart in bomb blasts and motor vehicle accidents and falls from heights. You don't really see cardiac contusions in sports with balls. Gotcha. I think that's the issue. Yeah, that makes sense. You were involved in a study that looked at international submissions to the registry, and it identified more soccer athletes than I think that probably had been previously in the registry with Commodio Cordis. And it contradicted the thought that this was 
primarily a solid core ball or core object, obviously, when we're talking about hockey pucks, rather than just an air-filled ball was the culprit. Talk us through that kind of thought process a little bit. Yeah, I actually went back and looked at that study because you you said that. And they don't actually say, they say the sport, but they don't actually say what happened. Ah. And when we look in our registry in which we have the data, when it occurs in soccer and football, it's a body object that hits the chest. So Mm -hmm. it's an elbow, it's a fist, it's a head. I don't know what, I mean, again, they didn't tell us how it actually happened. So I suspect that it actually was body parts in those sports and not the ball. In the registry of 220 patients, there's only one pneumatic ball incident. So I'm not saying it's totally impossible, but there's only one out of all those instances. And we have cases in soccer, we have cases in football, but it's body parts. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about identification and treatment of this condition. I'm sure you'll let us know why AD access is so essential for this condition. I mentioned this before that the, the end result is ventricular fibrillation. And the ventricular fibrillation you get from Commodio is no different than the ventricular fibrillation you get from, you know, acute MIs, from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, from long QT. It's all the same. The treatment is twofold. One is you have to continue to perfuse the brain while you're getting an AED because it's going to take time to get an AED. Mm-hmm. And the brain cells start to die around five minutes. And by 10 to 15 minutes, the brain is mush. So you really don't have that much time. Now, if you have an AED immediately available, and this is only true in hospital floors and only true in cardiac floors, if you can shock the person within one or two minutes, they'll do absolutely fine and don't need any CPR. But that's not real case in a sporting arena or or out of hospital cardiac arrest. That's never going to happen. You have to start CPR immediately and do good CPR. By good CPR, I mean, you have to really press pretty hard and press pretty fast. So 100 beats a minute and pressing two to two and a half inches pretty vigorously. Now, when you do that, you get pretty good perfusion to the brain. I've seen, and I'm sure maybe many of you have seen, that with good CPR, even though the patient's in VF, they wake up Hmm. and look at you. Mm -hmm. So you can perfuse the brain quite well with CPR. So perfuse the brain while you're getting the AED. This is also illustrated by... um, the soccer player um, Erickson, who had, you know, in Europe, had yep. a cardiac arrest, I think from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, although I'm not exactly sure. He had CPR for 47 minutes before he got ROSC. Mm. He had no brain damage. And that was because his CPR was was superb. So CPR, perfuse the brain, get an AED there as quickly as possible. And obviously that's crucial for survival rates for this condition. And we've seen from the research that was published here that it's increased from what was thought to be 10% in early data with more recent data of looking at shorter intervals of cases that were collected more recently of survival rates greater than 50%. You know, I think a lot of people quote, you know, 25% or less, but I think they're looking at that overall average. But we've certainly seen this significant increase in survival rates. Is is it a recognition issue, easier access to ADs, a little bit of both? What do you think? I think it's both. I think in in the past, this was an unheard of condition. Mm-hmm. And so someone playing sports that went down, you'd say, yeah, they got hit in the chest and went down. You say, oh, they got their wind knocked out of them. I think that's what most people would say. They'd never think of it as a cardiac arrest. So that's one. It's increased recognition that it's a cardiac arrest. And two, it's it's better CPR and better penetration of AEDs. And you talked about a little bit in the article as well as factors that were barriers to better survival rates. So what were those things that you found? There are a number of barriers. One is not recognizing that it's a cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. 
thinking that it's uh, the wind knocked out of them. So that's one. Two is that people don't do bystander CPR. Bystander CPR is so important. Mm-hmm. And we've learned that you don't need to do mouth to mouth. It's the chest compressions that's by far the most important. And, and I get it. I get it why people wouldn't want to do mouth to mouth. I, I get that. Yeah. But there should be nothing squeamish about doing chest wall compressions. There's nothing there that should be bothersome. The access to AEDs is also important. If you have no access to an AED or a defibrillator, it's going to be a lot of CPR. And if there's only one or two people that are around, they're going to tire. You're just not going to be able to continue good CPR. Good CPR, you can only do for two to four minutes. You can't yeah. do beyond that. It's, it's so tiring. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, if we could prevent these injuries, that would be great. Obviously, you know, when we have events such as what happened with Damar Hamlin, where there's the talk about the aggressive CPR, which is actually what we really want, right? There's going to be calls for changes because we react to things like this, things that are widely publicized and things there. You know, we can have rules, different protocols, implementation of protective gear as an example. You know, we know there's, there's been several things out there for looking at the sports that we are more concerned about where the balls and the pucks there, chest protectors, things like that. But how effective are these protective devices? You know, we know that they've been used. There's been development of safety baseballs. How effective are these really as far as preventing commodio cordis? Before I ask that, let me, let me touch on something you said, because I yeah. think this is a very, very important lesson from the DeMar case. And it's not to do with what caused it. He had a cardiac arrest. He had yep. VF. That was clear by the fact that he got CPR and shock. What's amazing is his recovery. And that just tells you that he had excellent CPR and you know relatively prompt defibrillation. The fact that he can write on a piece of paper three days after his arrest is remarkable. It just is an example of how good CPR and a defibrillator can protect the brain and keep you alive. Sorry to digress to that point. But no, I, would, I think that's I great. Actually, Watching the video of the uh, resuscitation of Templeton in the field, I was, I was quite impressed. I thought they did an excellent job. And they did an excellent job because they were prepared and they practiced. Yep. And I think that's an important lesson. Back to the prevention question. We've studied this in our experimental lab. We studied this uh, first with the safety baseballs. And safety baseballs, Worth makes a safety baseball a RIF-1, and that's for t-ballers and it's really quite spongy and then a riff five which is for eight to ten year olds and that's getting harder and then a, a riff 10 which is for 11 to 13 year olds which is barely noticeable from a standard baseball in our experimental model the risk of getting commodio cordis with these balls increased linearly to a standard baseball so even the riff 10 which was pretty close in hardness to a standard baseball was probably 60, 70% safer. So I do think age-appropriate safety balls are important. We looked at chest protectors in our lab in 2004, and we just bought commercial lacrosse and baseball chest protectors. Went to Dickies, ordered them online, and what we found is they were no better than nothing, than no chest protector. So the chest protectors circa 2004 just didn't work. And we did high-speed videos of these. And the reason that they didn't work is that the penetration of the ball into the chest was identical with or without a chest protector. They just didn't stop penetration of the ball. And the reason is they're made of these foams. Now, these foams are soft and feel good. You, You think, gee, this is a nice foam to sit on. But they didn't stop penetration of the ball. 
So armed with that, we set out to develop a mechanical surrogate. And this was my last experiment in Komodo I did was to develop a mechanical surrogate that could test chest wall protectors. And we worked with Wayne State, Oxy funded it. And what we did is we outfitted the ball with an accelerometer. We did high-speed photography. We looked at LV pressures. So we looked at a lot of the different variables. And then Wayne State, you know, which is known for their car crash dummies in automobiles, found that the traditional car crash dummies didn't work. So they had to, you know, develop a whole new surrogate. So they developed a whole new surrogate based on data from our model. And then what we did to validate the surrogate is I sent them, you know, a series of seven chest wall protector materials and two of which had performed very well in my lab, two of which had performed not so well, and three of which performed horribly. And so I said, tell me, tell me how these are going to perform in your model. And it was a great correlation. They were quite good at telling me which ones were effective and which ones were not effective. So that was the validation of the model. And then, you know, we gave that model to Noxie. And so we have no, we gave the license to Noxie. We get no financial reward from that model. But Noxie has now, after a you know public period of comment, said, this is the model that if you see you are going to get Noxie standard to reduce Commodio, you have to pass this test. And the NCAA has mandated that the lacrosse goalies and catchers in baseball have a chest wall protector that passes the standard. The U.S. Association of High School Baseball has adopted it also. So I do think that this is going to make a difference. And then what has happened is the manufacturers have come out with devices with chest wall protectors that can pass. And when you look at these, it's because they're made of harder plastics Mm -hmm. and not this soft foam that just feels good. So I'm very proud of this last stage because I do think in the last stage of my work in Cornwall, I do think it's going to make a difference. I, I really do think these chest protectors are so much better than 2004. Now, they're not necessarily going to prevent every case of Commodio, but I do think, you know, if I had a kid playing baseball now and it was catcher, I'd absolutely want a Noxie approved chest protector. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty cool testament as far as just what, you know, coming from uh, getting the fellow working on this project and getting interested in it and learning more about the epidemiology and trying to come up with this model, creating this model, and then actually coming up with some device or substance that actually can help prevent this thing. I mean, that's that's like that's like the cream of anybody's in sports medicine, at least our, our like goal for our career is, hey, we identify a problem, we figure out a way to, to fix it and, and come up with some models that we can test it out of and, and get come up with some sort of uh, solution for it. I think that's that's fantastic and a testament to a well-done career in, in, in Commodio for you, for sure. I think in the big picture of things, if, if, if you have an athlete, well, let's just take this, the pediatric scenario here. You have a 13-year-old gets hit in their chest with a baseball and they collapse and we make the assumption that it's Commodio cordis here. Do we just stop there as far as the assessment that the resuscitation has been successful or do we have to do more evaluation on that athlete? Can we just assume it's Commodio or is that really for us still a diagnosis of exclusion? We have to look at other cardiac conditions or other conditions that could have led to that collapse. No, absolutely. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. So you can't just assume. So you have to look for other causes of VF. And so you have to look for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, long QT syndrome, RV dysplasia, some of the other genetic cardiomyopathies. So you, you electrolyte disturbances, drugs. So you really have to do a thorough search, just like you have to do for any 
VF patient to make sure they don't have any underlying heart disease. And if they have no underlying heart disease, then they fulfill the definition of commodio cortis. Now, if we have an athlete who has survived an episode of commodio cortis, when can we allow them to return to play? What's a safe time to consider doing that? Do we need to be worried about potential recurrence? I mean, again, we talk about this sort of being a perfect storm kind of incident. And are there any episodes that you know of that are reported episodes of recurrence? You know, in the registry, there is no recurrence. You know, I, I think it is a perfect storm. I think that I've not recommended any people with commodio cortis to get implantable defibrillators. Mm-hmm. So I've definitely not recommended that. In terms of returns to sports, you know, I, I generally do recommend, you know, if you're going to return to sports, use a Noxie approved chest wall protector. Mm-hmm. But I don't prohibit these patients from going back to sports. I, I, I think sports are very good for individuals and, and I don't prohibit them. And I don't think you actually, it's, you don't even need that much time off, to be honest. Yeah. We really like to end our podcast with something we call the Pearl of the Podcast. So, Mark, this is your opportunity to leave our listeners your key take-home point regarding uh, Commodio Cortis. So, Mark, what's your pearl? My pearl is Commodio is an unusual event, cannot be predicted, cannot be screened for, occurs in people with normal hearts, and brings us to the common conclusion that you have to be prepared for cardiac arrest on the playing field. Even if athletes are screened, they can still have sudden cardiac arrest. And so emergency action plans, having everyone know CPR, and I think every high schooler should be taught CPR. I, mm-hmm. you know, they're taught so many other things in health. Every high schooler should learn CPR, and that's hands-only CPR. Mm-hmm. And having good access to AEDs. I mean, cardiac arrest is a survivable condition, as Dan is showing us. It's survivable. I'd really like to thank my guest, Dr. Mark Link, for his expertise and career-long commitment to learning more about a rare but significant cause of sudden cardiac death in young athletes. His efforts, along with several of his colleagues, have really played an important role in advancing our knowledge and for really allowing us to see a much higher survival rate from individuals who develop commodio cortis. And I'd like to thank him for his flexibility and willingness to participate on short notice, considering the the week and the events that have led up to uh, having this podcast be recorded. So be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halston, your host, and we hope you join us again for the next episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.